It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Harris Faulkner. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. The world is trying to help Ukraine while avoiding a wider conflict with Russia. But if that did happen, how would it end? The real challenge that we face is the possibility the U.S. might have to fight a nuclear armed power conventionally. I'm Dave Anthony. The Federal Reserve is getting ready this week to raise interest rates to deal with surging inflation. Uh, I think that it had probably committed something akin to a misstep in recent times in the sense of thinking that inflation would be absent from the economy forever. And I'm Jimmy Fallon. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. From the start of his assault on Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin has essentially claimed self-defense, saying that his nation's security concerns were not being addressed. But he took that to the next level on February 27th, a few days after the new invasion began, ratcheting up Russia's nuclear posture while accusing NATO countries of aggressive statements. Therefore, I'm ordering the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the General Staff to put the strategic nuclear forces on special alert. Through a translator there, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called it a bone-chilling development. The prospect of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, is now back within the realm of possibility. But a day after Putin's announcement, President Biden told reporters Americans should not be worried about nuclear war. And White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki said at the time there was no reason to change U.S. alert levels. And we think provocative rhetoric like this regarding nuclear weapons is dangerous, adds to the risk of miscalculation, should be avoided, and will not indulge in it. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham thinks Putin is bluffing. Putin knows that no one wins a nuclear exchange. So if he ordered a preemptive strike on the United States, some general would shoot him in the head. Putin's rhetoric does have people concerned about his nukes, though. In a Quinnipiac poll released last week, 60 percent of Americans surveyed think the Russian leader is willing to use nuclear weapons against NATO countries. There was a funny quote in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday that said one market analyst put it as a uncomfortable 10 percent chance that there could be a nuclear war. Jason Castillo is an associate professor at Texas A&M University's Bush School of Government and the co-director of the All Britain Center for Grand Strategy. I don't want to be alarmist. I don't think the probability is that high, but given the potential costs, any risk that's above one to 2% is too high in my mind. And the second thing I would say is that this whole operation, this whole war is taking place under the nuclear shadow, which is, I think, something we were familiar with during the Cold War. And then for 30 years, the only consideration we put to nuclear weapons was preventing other countries from getting them. Yeah, I mean, should we be more concerned now than we were a month ago, or should we have been more concerned already? Well, in general, I think we need to pay more attention to these issues. But yes, we should be more concerned since the outbreak of the war a few weeks ago. Is that concern rooted mainly in President Putin's statements that he's made, sort of mentioning his nuclear arsenal in the same breath as 
warnings to the West or is it more his his actions that are concerning? Like, is it just sort of, you know, maybe Western nations didn't really think he would launch this invasion? I think Western nations actually got this one right. I think my concern stems from one part Putin's saber rattling with about his nuclear weapons, uh, which is something he did when he invaded Crimea in 2014. For me, the danger uh, with nuclear weapons would be if NATO got involved. It's long been a concern that the Russian military might take some action in the Baltic states, for example. And the concern is that if NATO does defeat Russia conventionally in the Baltics or elsewhere, they would use nuclear weapons to prevent defeat. I mean, that's a really terrifying scenario uh, to think of either side um, using these weapons. But I'm wondering what kind of war games have we or other countries done for this? Is this the type of thing that war games are done with various countries at various times or each does their own nuclear scenarios or it's just NATO? What kind of war games are we talking about and how frequent are they? So I want to make a distinction between war games, which can be tabletop exercises or people in a room playing different sides in a hypothetical scenario so they can be better planners. And I've been on both sides. I've been someone who organizes games and someone who's played them while I worked in government. And you may remember that before this war started, the Russians made the argument that, well, this is just an exercise. Uh, We're not planning to invade Ukraine. In both exercises and war games, we think about the unthinkable because that's something you want your military organizations and the civilian bureaucracy that supports it to think about. When you say war games, you're really talking about not just nuclear war games, as it were, which presumably would be more often the tabletop kind, um, but also conventional. Because we've forgotten some of the basics of the Cold War we're not really just looking at nuclear weapons in a vacuum. We're looking at the relationship between nuclear weapons and conventional weapons. So the real challenge that we face is the possibility the U.S. might have to fight a nuclear armed power conventionally. And for 30 years, we're used to the quite amazing effectiveness of the U.S. military, especially when it's fighting people like Saddam Hussein. Well, our adversaries have watched that. And that's why they want nuclear weapons. This motivated the Russians to improve the survivability of their nuclear forces. And it's certainly driving the modernization of Chinese nuclear forces. Nuclear weapons have only been used once during armed conflict in 1945. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. President Harry Truman announcing the first of two atomic bombs dropped on Japan, which had refused an ultimatum to surrender the month before. They refused again, and the second bomb was dropped three days later on the city of Nagasaki. Let there be no mistake. We shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. While subsequent generations continue debating the decision, part of Truman's argument was that bringing an end to World War II would ultimately save lives, avoiding an invasion of the Japanese mainland. Still, the bombs killed tens of thousands of civilians, including many in the months that followed. Today's nuclear weapons are much more powerful, and they've evolved. They're more accurate. And I would also say that they are more survivable. So when I use the term survivable, I mean 
it's very hard for an opponent to strike first and completely disarm the United States of its nuclear forces. We could probably strike first against many of our adversaries and destroy many of their nuclear forces, putting aside the damage to the environment, which would be significant. But I am not optimistic that even in a splendid first strike that we would get all their weapons. Right. So you're you're talking about hitting their weapons before they have a chance to launch them. I mean, if they get one launched, is there a way to stop it once it's fired? Is that part of the defensive mechanism as well? Could we take one out midair? This is a, yeah, this is a difference from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We do have ballistic missile defenses of different uh, altitudes. So the problem I think we have is that adversaries like the Russians and the Chinese are thinking about how to evade our missile defenses. They worry about a scenario where we strike first and then they have only a ragged ability to retaliate. Again, our missile defense capabilities are good, but but they're not perfect. And because they're imperfect, I am pessimistic that we could limit damage to the United States if there is an all-out exchange with the Russians, uh, even the Chinese, and possibly the North Koreans. But they should at least be as fearful on their end, yeah. one, one would hope, I, I guess. I mean, none of this is nice to think about, to say the least. What yes. happens if a nuclear weapon is launched? How much reaction time is there? Well, just going back to the Cold War era, and I think this is still true today, the a ballistic missile launched from the continental United States or from Russia would take about 30 minutes to reach its target. You can take submarine launch ballistic missiles and depress their trajectory so they arrive more quickly. So in the Cold War, we worried about Soviet submarine launch ballistic missiles that could be launched out of the Atlantic and the Pacific attacking our air bases that are on the coast. In terms of destruction and potential loss of life, how much damage could one nuclear warhead do? I ask that bearing in mind that it depends on what it hits in terms of a major population center versus an area less populated. But in general terms, can you put it in context for us, the power of just one of these things? The amount of damage it does will depend on the height of burst when the weapon explodes. It matters whether it's exploded in the air or it's meant to hit a target on the ground or even deeply buried. In those latter two cases, you're going to generate fallout, which is uh, irradiated material on the ground, and that's going to disperse the effect of radiation across uh, a certain area. Then you also have the blast and the fire. Over a major city, you're probably going to kill thousands of people. It's and chilling. The effects, will, the effects will linger. By the early 1950s, American schools were having drills, diving under desks in case of nuclear attack. Are we past that today? I mean, what would today's answer be to those desk drills? Are we about to see more people building underground bomb shelters? There was an article in the New York Times uh, that struck me as kind of tongue in cheek about how Europeans are thinking about bomb shelters. I don't think that we're at that point yet. I'm not sure we'll get to that point. You know, the reaction by the general public and even some of our commentators on TV and social media have been in two categories. You have some people 
who think that World War III is imminent. And then you have some people who are cavalier and think that the Russians wouldn't dare do that. And so that we're being weak and not aggressive enough in Ukraine. Not to be too Clintonian about it, but I'm in the middle here. We need to be realistic. There was a letter published in the Manchester Guardian and in Politico, where a group of scholars, and I was one of them, signed this letter urging the Biden administration to resist calls for a no-fly zone. And the reason we do that, I think, is that's one path that could put Russia and NATO in a conventional war. And I think they would have incentives to use nuclear weapons. I don't think we're going back to the Cold War, but I do think what you're seeing is a return to great power politics. And for 30 years, we've behaved like there was a 21st century way of doing business. And I think the Russians and the Chinese are pushing back. And I think what we have forgotten in the 30 years uh, since the end of the Cold War was geopolitics that military power still matters, that nuclear deterrence is still playing a role. Um, the way I look at this crisis is that for Russia, this is like their Cuban Missile Crisis. And what I like to tell people is the Cuban Missile Crisis did not end in a war because both Kennedy and Khrushchev gave one another off-ramps. And right now we're in a position where all sides, the West and Russia, are imposing costs uh, especially on Ukraine. And I'm slightly optimistic that Ukraine and Russia are starting to create their own off-ramps. Well, thank you for ending this on a hopeful note. <laughs> Jason, <laughs> Jason Castillo, Associate Professor at the Texas A&M University's Bush School of Government. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Take care. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Jimmy Fallon with your Fox News commentary coming up. How's the economy? That's what the Fed is going to assess the next two days. And then Federal Reserve policymakers are expected to raise a key interest rate for the first time since 2018 as inflation keeps surging. Democrats didn't cause this problem. Vladimir Putin did. President Biden blaming Russia's invasion and the sanctions the U.S. and our allies imposed on leader Vladimir Putin. Spiking up oil, leading to record gas prices. But Republican Senator Ted Cruz tells Fox... Listen, gas prices had increased nearly 50% under Joe Biden before Putin invaded Ukraine. GOP lawmakers blame Biden green energy policies like scrapping the Keystone Pipeline. Folks, let's get something straight here. The Keystone Pipeline was two years away and had been 2% finished. Give me a break. But it's not just gas. Overall, inflation is rising at annual levels not seen in 40 years. Consumer prices were up nearly 8% last month. The Fed has historically viewed inflation as sort of its top priority. Mark Hamrick is senior economic analyst at Bankrate.com, Washington bureau chief. Uh, I think that it had probably committed something akin to a misstep in recent times in the sense of thinking that inflation would be absent from the economy forever. Of course, the causes of inflation have been complex and have occurred across a number of different fronts. Of course, the latest surge being connected to 
what might have been characterized as an unforeseen war. But, uh, you know, the Fed basically has a dual mandate, and that is for stable prices and maximum employment. It had really been, I would say, uh, prioritizing the employment part of that equation because it had failed for many years to achieve its inflation objective of essentially 2%. But of course, now times are different. Inflation is uh, historically high and set to go even higher here in the near term. We have on Tuesday another update on inflation from the producer side, the wholesale side. How bad do you expect that to be? Well, I mean, I think, you know, this is not a secret, right? (laughs) Uh, To the extent that we're measuring inflation in the pipeline in the month of February, and it is expected to remain elevated as it was the month before. We're talking about high single digits uh, in the current round and may well be if we have continued or sustained high inflation along the lines of what we've seen recently. And that is a question mark because we just don't know how events are going to unfold. We may see it beyond uh, the already elevated level of inflation, either in this next snapshot or in the following month or months. Yeah. And so uh, the Federal Reserve all, you know, had already uh, had those alarm bells going off, uh, but uh, you know, no longer is inflation transitory when you're talking about something that's continued for 15 months, right? Right, right. But I mean, this is, as you said, it's February. In March, we had this huge surge in oil prices. It's come back down some, but the price of the gas pump up around four thirty a gallon, and it's been that way since last week. So, how much worse will that get? Because the rise in gas prices and diesel are a ripple effect throughout the economy, right? That's right. And, you know, this isn't something that is irrelevant, right? In other words, uh, the cost of transportation, the cost of motor fuel, it's something that we're highly reliant on. So, uh, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that we could notch some of these annual increases up to 10%. Uh, and then we'll see whether there is so-called demand destruction, which is a fancy way of saying, people start cutting back. And I, and I, you know, we have not seen that in the gasoline consumption yet, but I think people are still processing all of this. And, and when you look at things like Uber tacking on a modest fee uh, in the sense of, oh, that's going to cost more. The airlines are going to have to pass on higher gasoline costs, although some hedge against that. I'm meaning they have a way to counter it. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, like that previous 16 ounce bag of coffee that now is, 12 ounces, it's no longer, that's that's the new pound, right? Right. Uh, we can either see shrinkflation. Right, where they make see smaller products exactly. in the same, right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. We've already seen that yeah. with cereal boxes and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, and I think we're going to see more of that, uh, you know, sort of like the quarter pounder needs to be weighed at this point <laughs> uh, to see if it still is. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of costs that are sort of hidden in there as well. Right, so it's uh, passed on to us. Now, yeah. here's my question. Last week on Fox Business, I saw an analyst like you who who focuses on the economy who gave the chance at a recession at 100 percent because of the surge in oil and gas. Do you think that is close or not? Well, uh, that's a guess. Uh, and what I well, what I would follow up with is a guess as well. And uh, what we don't know is how this turns out, meaning I'm talking about the war right now. Sure. Uh, and we don't know how uh, if there were a resolution. And it does seem like to some degree there is an incentive for both sides uh, to resolve 
this war, uh, whether Vladimir Putin is someone who can be, you know, reasoned with is is another. Yeah, question. to bar to bank on that is is is, yeah, is exactly. almost impossible. You don't know. But, yeah. yeah, but what is certain is what's already happened, and what's already happened is a shocking surge. So uh, in the past, uh, you know, we have seen events uh, that have caused essentially an end to growth, a temporary end to growth. We had that in March and April of 2020 because of the pandemic and the related lockdowns and sort of self-imposed restrictions. Yeah, but at that um, time. Mark, at that time, the Fed cut interest rates. They had a cut of one and a half percent in March and April of 2020 when the economy was slowing down here. Here, we're going to have a rate hike. Right. I, but, the you know, the economy's problems, essentially, barring something that is unforeseen in the financial system, is is not going to be associated with uh, a 25 basis point increase in interest rates, you know, currently with that target is essentially uh, between zero and uh, 0.25%. Then if it's not going to affect much, why do it? Why not make it a half percent? I can tell you, as someone who's talked to central bankers for years, always in the back of their head is the fear that they get caught sort of flat footed in a situation like this. And all of a sudden they have had the tools in their toolbox removed to your point. Essentially they do have tools, but they're not very effective tools at this point. And so you need to get back to neutral so that when the time comes, you can put your foot back on the gas pedal. And as you know, there's been uh, plenty of people sort of, doing back of the envelope calculations or head scratching saying, you know, we had the Fed doing its thing. We had trillions of dollars spent by two different Congresses and two different presidential administrations. So it was a bipartisan effort, although ironically, uh, it, you know, the, the blame shifting game will always go on in Washington. Speaking of that blame game, inflation took off. Uh, right after President Biden's nearly $2 trillion COVID stimulus. That's the one last year Republicans like Congressman Kevin Brady did not support. The president says... I'm sick of this stuff. We have to talk about it because the American people think the reason for inflation is government spending more money. Simply not true. What does Mark Hamrick think? It turns out it was easier to close the economy than to reopen it. Uh, and so, you know, why did we have a 40 percent increase in the cost of used cars? It was because we had supply chains that made newer cars harder to get. Uh, and people did need transportation, especially if they didn't want to take mass transportation, uh, fearing that was unsafe. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that that was not necessarily a function of an act of Congress or acts of Congress, as it was simply the economy reopening uh, during or, or, you know, hopefully toward the end of a pandemic might have the last round of stimulus been too much. It's absolutely a possibility, but I don't think we're absolutely in a position to say that there are a lot of causes. All right. Let's get to the job market, because then you've referenced that a few times. We have unemployment back down. It's at 3.8%. We've had a lot of jobs created in the last year as we reopen the economy. Where are we on that market right now, in your opinion? Well, first of all, we're pretty close to having recaptured all the jobs that were lost. We have the unemployment rate at 3.8%, which is uh, within a uh, would-be zone's throw of the 3.5% low that occurred before the pandemic. But also remember that we would typically have been creating jobs to the tune of 225, 200. 
50,000 a month during this time. And so that adds a couple of um, several million jobs on the to-do list as well. And we also have people who exited the labor force and haven't come back in. And people are changing jobs too, right? Isn't that part of it? Absolutely. And uh, we just published a survey at Bankrate, which finds a majority of Americans in the workforce, meaning those who are working or looking for work, do plan to look for a new job in the next 12 months. Those who have lower incomes are among those who are more likely to look. And another uh, fascinating aspect to this sort of refresh of a survey we did before uh, Labor Day, but this one was done recently, uh, is that people are prioritizing the opportunity to either work from home or work remote as well as flexible hours taken together over their hope for higher pay. It's pretty close, but a majority are looking for flexibility and a majority looks for higher compensation. And and of course, then that has inflationary implications as well. But of course, we know uh, essentially the gains we've been seeing in wages have not been keeping up with the pace of inflation. Right. We're not getting raises to the same degree as we're getting price hikes in in the grocery store and everywhere else. Uh, If we get gas rising back and we hit $5 a gallon or something like that, we have already had also wheat prices and a lot of commodities hit highs we haven't seen since the recession of 2008 and such. If we get that to continue and if that happens, do you think then we will have the recession and then will the Fed have to reverse course from the rate hike we expect this week? I think I'm going to wait to hear what Chairman Powell says when he's asked those very questions, because I, th- I think that their number one priority is to respond to the inflation as they see it right now. And so my advice for people who are listening right now is prepare for the possibility of a continuation of interest rate hikes, but realize that the Fed does take its job very seriously and is going to do what it thinks is best for the economy as it gathers and uh, and will sort of go to that playbook at the time of those meetings. And if and if they deem that a, another rate hike down the road would be uh, detrimental or unhelpful, then then they have to take a look at that uh, from a different perspective. It feels like the crystal ball is kind of cloudy right now, especially with, with Russia. Well, you know, uh, uh, my idea about that is, is that we always have a high degree of uncertainty, but we also have higher perceptions of uncertainty. And so if you'd gone to that crystal ball two and a half years ago and said, what do we see over the horizon? Pretty sure none of the palm readers out there would have had pandemic supply chain difficulties and a war in Ukraine, uh, you know, coming into view. I'd like to meet the one who did have that. Yes, indeed. Yes, they would have a yacht right now. They might be able to get one from one of the oligarchs. Mark Hamrick, <laughs> Senior Economic Analyst, Washington Bureau Chief for Bankrate.com. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Great to be with you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jimmy Fallon. What's on your mind? 
So Tom Brady announced that he's unretiring just six weeks after calling it quits. You know inflation's bad when not even a seven-time Super Bowl champion can afford to live on a fixed income. But to put it in football terms, Brady's already had one career that was incredible, so I think he was right to go for two. The guy clearly loves playing. And even after 22 years, the high of leading a game-winning drive has got to be way cooler than driving your kids to school. I mean, no offense to the family, but when was the last time somebody threw you a ticker tape parade for making it to homeroom on time? The point being, Brady realizes we all get one season on this earth, and you're supposed to spend it running as many of your favorite plays as possible. Because when the clock runs out, you're not going to wish you spent a few more hours sitting on the sideline watching the game of life pass you by. You're going to wish you were out on the field trying to score in more ways than one. So my advice to you is the next time you're thinking about punting in life, I'd go for it instead. Be sure to listen to Fox Across America with me, Jimmy Fallon, weekdays from noon to three on the Fox News app and foxnewsradio.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.